We're just going to interview David before he comes to speak to us tonight. Um, and before we start, before I forget, there's a CU phone and the number is behind us. If you have a question at all throughout the night, um, just text it in. And at the end, David is going to answer all the questions. So um, that's just in case I forget. Um, so David, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? <laughs> Oh, I've got one of these, oh, haven't I? Sorry. Hello, everyone. Can't really see you, but I know you're there. I think I hear some of you. Uh, my name's David Legg, and I'm originally born and bred in Belfast, East in particular. And uh, so that's where I come from, and now living in Portadown, County Armagh. Oh. <laughs> There's no one from East Belfast, no. Just Portadown. Um, what else do you want to know? I'm married, got two kids, and I'm an itinerant, not an illiterate, an itinerant evangelist and Bible teacher. Okay. Um, second question. Could you tell us a little bit about your story and how you have got to know the real Jesus and what he means to you? Well, to start where you ended, Jesus means everything to me, absolutely everything. He's my life, he's my breath, um, he's the reason why I exist. Uh, I grew up in a Christian environment in that my folks went to, to church and sent me along to Sunday school and whatnot, but um, though I, I knew what the gospel of Jesus Christ was, um, I was a young child when I, I first believed the message, but I went through that period that I suppose most people go through during adolescence and teens and through education where I question a lot of things, but came around to, to still believe those things and I've tried and tested them now for quite some time. But basically, Jesus is everything to me. He's the reason why I exist. Um, he's my full-time job, although that's the case for every Christian, but he certainly my employer as well. I'm utterly dependent upon him in every single way. So that's what Jesus means to me. And just lastly, you said about you've been tested and trialed. Um, maybe someone's sitting thinking Christians have it sorted and their lives are perfect. Could you tell us maybe just not something you've been through, but something that God's really shown through for you? Well, uh, Christians are far from perfect. That's for for starters, um, and we, we certainly do have our doubts, we do have our questions, and sometimes we can give the impression to folk who are unbelievers that you know we have no problems reasonably or rationally with, with the things that we believe. We do have questions, and life is full of challenges to all of us, let alone those of us who have faith and belief in God. Uh, but the bottom line is, um, you've either got someone to lean on or you don't, and um, the one whom I lean on is the one who sustains the whole universe. Um, and the Bible teaches also who's overcome sin, greatest obstacle of all. So um, we do go through difficulties. I've been through stressful times. I've been off work at times with uh, beginnings of depression and whatnot. It's not easy. Uh, people give the impression that to be a Christian you're filled with joy dancing around all the time. Well, there is joy and there is great peace and there is great celebration in Jesus. But you do have your hard times. You experience things in life that are difficult. Jesus said the, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. Everybody has stuff to face in life. 
and we've all got to take stuff on the chin. But the great issue is, do you do it on your own or do you do it with the Saviour? Thank you. Um, I'm just going to leave disappear. it. Yeah, disappear and um, leave it to you. But yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Hannah. Um, the question I've been given tonight is, why should I be saved? Now, I don't know whether that is a, a term that you're familiar with or not, saved. Unfortunately, uh, it's become a bit of a cliche uh, for Christians, but it actually does have a meaning, and it means exactly what it says, saved. Now, my wee lad, um, he's seven years of age, and we try and do little Bible readings with him, and we went through a series with him about this word saved, but the little book that he was reading changed the word saved into the word rescued. That's what it means to be rescued. The inference is if you're saved, to be saved, to be rescued, you have to be lost. And so that's very simply the one word answer that I'm giving to you tonight. Why should I be saved? Because you're lost. That's what the Bible teaches, um, that you're lost. Luke chapter 19 and verse 10 is the verse I want to give to you tonight. The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Son of Man is just another term for Jesus. And Jesus was telling us that he's come into the world to save people, to rescue people, they're lost. And you need to be saved tonight because you're lost. And I know that's giving it to you between the eyes, but that's just the way it is. That's what you need to hear. You need to realize you're in trouble. You need to realize that spiritually you're in a perilous predicament and you need a savior. I don't know how many of you here tonight are not Christians, but this is what you need to hear. You need to understand the awful position that you are in without a savior. You say, wow, I thought the gospel was good news. Well, that's what the gospel means. It means good news. But you see, you cannot understand or appreciate the good of the good news until you understand the bad news. You can't appreciate how great it is to be rescued until you realize that you're lost. It's often illustrated like um, a diamond uh, in the window of a jeweler's and it's offset by normally black or blue, dark blue velvet. And it's that black backdrop that sets forth the gem, gives us the aspect and the beauty of the diamond. And you see, it's understanding the awful position that humankind is in that makes you appreciate the good news of the gospel. Now, that's not very popular. It's certainly not PC today to tell people that they're sinners, to tell them that God's angry with sin, and to tell them that there's a judgment coming. But that's what this book tells us. And we just have to face it. You don't have to believe it, but you do have to face it. It's not enough just to stick your head in the sand and deny it. You've got to actually face and weigh up for yourself whether or not this is actually true. Now, a great problem that many people have is, how, how could God, if you say he's a God of love, how could he even contemplate judging people and sending them to hell? But you see, you've got to understand those terms that you've just used in a biblical fashion. If God is good and God is good, You've got to understand what the goodness of God means. You see, we often conceive of the goodness of God as being our salvation, of being our help and our deliverance, when actually not only is the goodness of God the source of our salvation, it's also the source of our problem. Because God is absolutely good. Absolutely good. 
That's just something that we cannot conceive of. Absolute goodness. See, God, he is loving, he is gracious, he is forgiving, but also two other of his attributes are he's just and he's holy. He's absolutely perfect and he's absolutely just. He is impartial. That means he can't just turn a blind eye to people doing wrong stuff. He doesn't sweep things under the carpet. Contrary to popular belief, he doesn't just erase our sin without any consequence. He cannot do that. And we find that very hard to take in because we as creatures are partial. We are partial, especially when it concerns us. Now, we have built in with our humanity this natural inclination towards justice. So whenever we hear of an injustice in society, or maybe a friend or a loved one who we know has been ill done by, there's something rises up within us, and we want justice. We want the book to be thrown at them. We want to pay them to pay the penalty. But when it's us, when we get caught, when we're the ones with our hands in the cookie jar, we don't want to face everything that's coming our way. We're impartial. No, we're partial. God is the only one who is impartial. Absolutely perfect. Now that causes us a real problem. Because that means that one day we're going to have to face our sins. And maybe you think this is all fanciful. But I want to suggest to you tonight that we do live in a moral universe. And we will not get away with everything that we do. There are certain laws in the universe. Fire burns. Water drowns. And another law is sin damns. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. There are consequences to sin. And the consequences of sin is basically a place called hell. Now, it's funny, these days you're allowed to use the word hell everywhere, in class, on the work floor, but in pulpits and in churches, it's a terrible thing to mention hell. Everybody gets scared. But Jesus actually talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. In fact, the word for hell in the New Testament is a word called Gehenna, and it's used 12 times in the New Testament, and Jesus used it 11 times from his lips, and the 12th time Jesus gave it to the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. And it's the word for hell, and it's based on an actual geographical location just outside the wall of Jerusalem, which was the Jerusalem city incinerator, the rubbish dump. It was the place where they not only put all the garbage, but they also dumped the corpses of criminals who had been executed. Everything that you can imagine was just put there, and there was a huge fire constantly burning. And Jesus took that as an analogy of the human moral rubbish heap that one day would exist in eternity where men and women would pay for their sin. Now, don't shoot the messenger. I didn't make it up. This is Jesus now. This is what he said. And that word that he used for hell was based on that. That's why he actually described it like this. There worm dies not, and the fire is not quenched. And the worm speaks of decomposition, and the fire speaks of that incinerator that was constantly fired up. And what Jesus is saying is there's constant decomposition, there's constant death, and the fire never goes out. 
Jesus says there is a place in God's created universe that exists like that. Now this might freak you out and you might think this is horrendous. This is audacious that a God should, should think of such a thing. But let me ask you this question. Do you really think that Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin and Pol Pot and all the other great dictators and men that were guilty of genocides that are unimaginable, did they get away with their crimes? Did Adolf Hitler, if he did put a, a gun to his brain and take away his life, did he just get away with it? Or is there a day coming when all of us will have to answer for the lives that we have led? The Bible says very clearly in Acts 17 that there is, that God has appointed a day in which he will judge the world by that man, Jesus Christ, and he has given assurance to everyone of that fact by raising him from the dead. So the resurrection is the proof. Jesus is coming again to this world, and when he comes, it's judgment day, and the books of our lives will be opened, and we will have to give an account of how we've lived. That's bad news. It really is. That's why you need to be rescued. That's why you need to be saved. But there's some people and they point the finger at God and they say, that's just the reason why I hate you. That's the reason why I can't stick you. Why I can't stick Christians. Why I can't stick this book. Because you're like that. You're the way you are. You judge sinners and you just, I've got this impression of you that you just want to drop people into hell. Well, think again. Matthew chapter 25 tells us Jesus said that hell wasn't created for any human being. Jesus said it was created for the devil and his angels. For devils and demons. And the only way that a human being will ever go to hell is if that human being rejects God's way and chooses Satan's way and the way of sin and selfishness and lives for themselves. You see, what you've also got to face is not only that you are sinful, you've broken God's laws, His commandments, Ten Commandments, you might know some of them, if not all of them. You've broken God's laws, that makes you a sinner. None of us is perfect, so we're all in the same boat. But what you've also got to face is you do it by choice. You do it by choice. God has made us in our, his own image, and one of the things that that means is that we've been given free choice. And we've chosen our own way. We've chosen to break God's laws. We've chosen to be selfish. And effectively, what we're doing is we're using this great privilege that we have without any responsibility to the consequences. Woody Allen and his film Crimes and Misdemeanors and the We Prelude makes the statement that we are all the sum total of our choices. Now that's profound. We are all the sum total of our choices. So when you think of hell and you think of being in great trouble and being lost in our sin, it's not a case of God who is just bent on getting even with humanity, but it's actually a choice that we have all made. Right back to our forefather Adam and foremother Eve, we have all chosen to go our own way, and naturally we are bent on going against God's way. So that C.S. Lewis, that great author and philosopher and theologian, he said, There are those people who say to God, Thy will be done. And then there are those to whom God says, Thy will be done.
And those are they who end up in hell. It's the choices we make. So there's nobody going to be able to shake their fist at God on judgment day or from the fires of hell or whatever hell's like. There's various descriptions of it in the Bible. It's a place of lostness, a place of barrenness, a place of separation from communion with God, a place of loneliness, a place of darkness. Nobody's going to be able to say, God, this is your fault because we've chosen it ourselves. In Agatha Christie's book, the uh, forget the, the title of Hercules is the title and um, Hercule Poirot is the detective investigating a, a murder and the murder is taking place in a subterranean nightclub and so Hercule Poirot is walking down the steps underground to the nightclub and he reads a slogan on each of the steps and one said uh, I'm not doing anybody any harm the next said I'll stop this when I like and the third says, after I've enjoyed myself, I'll wipe the slate clean. And Hercule Poirot was heard to say under his breath, these are the steps that lead to hell. You know what the nightclub was called? Hell. Under the ground. But those were the steps that take people there. The choices we make. We think they're without consequence. Maybe that's where you are tonight. And you know you're lost. You may don't agree with all the Christian theology or truth that you're hearing tonight, but you know deep down in your heart, in your psyche, but even deep down, way down deep in your identity, you know that you're a lost soul. And you're not just lost in time. This is what you need to realize. You are made an eternal being. You're spiritual. And if you're not rescued, if you're not saved, you'll be lost forever. What's the good news? <laughs> well, there were two senators in the United States Senate many years ago, and they were having a barney. They were one another. Uh, and then it escalated and got out of control, and one told the other, go to hell. And there's a whole Ferrari, and... Vice President Calvin Coolidge was the presiding officer of the Senate at that time, and he had to take these two members into his office and sort out this problem. And they were still going at one another, and he just sat and he, he poured over a book while they were fighting with each other. They didn't realize the book that he was looking at was the Bible. And once they exhausted themselves, he looked up from the holy book, and he said to them, gentlemen, I have something to tell you. You don't have to go there. You don't have to go there. And you don't have to go to hell. Now listen, I know this is, this is fanciful for some of you. Some of you are in denial of it. Some of you would vehemently oppose and argue against it. But you've got to face this. You've got to face it. Either Jesus Christ was a liar or he told the truth or he was deluded. You've got to just face it. Are you going to believe popular opinion? The Beatles, imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try, no hell below us, above us only sky. You want to believe them? You believe the Beatles. Or are you going to believe Jesus Christ, the Son of God? He was either a liar, purposely deceiving people, or he was a lunatic, he was self-deceived, 
or he was Lord and is Lord. And if that's the case, you can't bury your head in the sand anymore. You have to face what he said, what he taught, and what he did. People sometimes say to me, hell, oh, rubbish. Hell's a place on earth, and I'm going through it now. <laughs> that's the way you feel. And some people, I think, can get a wee taste of hell here on earth because of the things they're dabbling in. Because it's not just a judgment for sin one day in hell. There's actually a judgment in sin now. And I know it's pleasurable. It wouldn't be such a big problem. We wouldn't be tempted if it wasn't pleasurable. But there's a bite. There's a venom. There's an after effect of sin. There's a downer. Just like taking a shot of heroin. You'll have the greatest high in your life and then you'll have a huge down. Sin's like that. And then you chase that high for the rest of your days. And you never ever get it again. Well, let me say to you tonight, hell was a place on earth. Let me take you just for a moment to hillside, just outside Jerusalem. Looks like a skull, actually. And there's three crosses on it. And in the middle cross is the Son of God, Jesus Christ. The Bible says that hell is a place of darkness, outer darkness. And for three hours on the cross, there was a darkness that covered the whole land because Jesus Christ was enduring the equivalent of hell for you. The Bible says that hell is a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. The Bible says that Jesus endured torment on the cross. His soul was in torment. The Bible says in Luke 16 that hell is a place of thirst where there's no water. Jesus cried out from the cross, I thirst. The Bible says hell is a place where you're forsaken by God, cut off from his presence. Jesus cried from the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was being forsaken. He was enduring the equivalent of hell for you so that you might never have to go there. The rule book says you don't have to go there because Jesus died for you. Jesus endured your hell. Don't ever point the finger at God or shake the fist at God. Listen, whatever it means for every sinner who has ever sinned, all their sins throughout all humanity, it was compressed into three short hours and placed into Jesus Christ, and God cursed him with his wrath for the sins of the world. Whatever it means for everybody to go to hell for all eternity, for all the sins they've ever committed, Jesus Christ bore that in his own soul on the cross because God loves you. And that's good news. That's good news. There is bad news. But that's the good news. And the great issue is, what are you going to do about it? You say, well, what, what, what is there to do? Well, you either accept it or you reject it. You either stay in denial and just think, ah, oh, this is blarney. I'm just going to live my life and enjoy it. And ah, oh, there's choices we make, but there are no eternal consequences. Listen, if you break the law of the land and you get caught, there's consequences. 
We live in a moral universe, even in our own world. Even if it's not perfect, we still have standards. Civilized society still has rule and law. And it all reflects the fact that we've been made like that. And are we going to rob from God as the eternal judge and creator of the universe the right to judge his world according to his laws? I don't think so. So here's the choice. You accept that your misdemeanors and your crimes and your sins were judged on Jesus and you take your get-out-of-jail card free by grace through faith or you take the chance and you say, I'll go it alone and on my own head be it. Now, I don't want to get too heavy here tonight but I mean, it's hard not to be when you're talking about hell and you're talking about Jesus dying on the cross and you're talking about God. I mean, it doesn't get more heaven than that. But what do you think God's going to do? The people who reject what he did in giving Jesus to the cross. What a sacrifice. What love. Didn't have to do it. Could have just let us all go to hell. And he would have been right and just to do it. But because he loves us, because he wants us to know him, he wants us to have life now. Heaven when we die, yes, but he wants us to know him now and have life now. Do you have life now? Maybe living it up, but do you have life now to the full? That's what true Christianity is. Life now and life to come, but the choice is yours. It's your choice. Let's pray. Now, if you've sensed tonight that God has spoken to you, you have something to do, you, you've, you have to respond. Is there anybody here and God has spoken to you and you want to know that you're saved? You want to know that you're rescued? You want to know that you're safe? That your sins are forgiven and that you're not going to be lost? You feel lost maybe now? You want to be found now, but you don't want to be lost forever. Is there anyone here tonight that would slip their hand up to say, look, that's me and I want to do something about that? Is there anybody here? Just while every head is bowed, and I close just where you're sitting. You would just put your hand up and I'll pray for you just now and lead you in a prayer. Is there anyone here? Just quickly, don't be embarrassed. Yes, God bless you. Is there anybody else? Somebody's put their hand up. Is there anyone else? It's another hand. Anyone else? Let me just lead you in a prayer. And anybody else that didn't put their hand up, and, but you want to do this, doesn't, putting your hand up doesn't matter. Just, it's good to indicate your need, to know that you're serious. And whether you put your hand up or not, pray this with me and mean it. It's by faith that you're saved. Do you understand what that means? That means just trusting and believing what God says. So God says you're a sinner. God says he sent his son to die for sinners because he loves you. And God says he wants to rescue and save sinners. 
So you're believing that, and you're asking Him to do it, believing He will hear you, believing that you will receive forgiveness as you come to Him. Now, you can do that. He's believable. He's trustworthy. So come now and just pray these words. It's not the words that matter. It's your faith in your heart. Just say it with me now from your heart. Oh God, I come to you. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, I admit I am a sinner, but I turn from my sinful ways and I turn to you. And I choose to believe in you and trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I ask you to rescue me, to save me from my sin and from being lost. Cleanse me from my sin. I renounce Satan and all his works. And I ask you to come into my life now and be my Savior and be my Lord and fill me with the Holy Spirit now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just say those, I think it was two people put their hand up. If you want to chat to me afterwards, I'd love you to do that. I have a bit of literature that can help you on your way. Do make yourself known too to some of the folk here in the CU um, so that they might encourage you. And do come along uh, to these meetings to be built up. But if there's anybody else who wants to chat to me or talk to me about these things, and if you didn't stick your hand up and you prayed that prayer, please do tell someone. But praise God for those two folk tonight who responded, at least. And uh, seek out the help tonight, any of you who need it. Now, I'm going to get grilled now, is that right? Do join me on the sofa here for a wee minute. Um, this so is I'll, a sofa then? Well, you know, it's a makeshift sofa. We don't have much money about here at Jordanstown. Ikea, is it? Per students. Um, so, a couple of questions come in. Um, first one was here. Um, at Judgment Day, if you are a Christian, is it just your works that God, works for God that you did on earth that are looked at, or is your sin looked at as well? Well, um, woo, that's a big one. It is. Uh, Revelation chapter 20 talks about the great white throne, which is for people who have never believed in Jesus. But there's a different um, judgment that's spoken of in the book of Corinthians, which is called a Bema judgment, a judgment seat for Christians. Um, so the people that appear at the great white throne are people who have never believed in Jesus, so they're being judged for their sins and condemned. But the people who are at this Bema, it's a Greek word for just judgment podium, um, they're judged for how they've lived their life for Jesus. Are they judged for their sin? Well, if you're saved, your sins were judged on Jesus. But I do believe that if there's unconfessed sin in the life of a Christian, if there's something that they've been aware of and they haven't repented of or dealt with, there will be consequences at the judgment seat. Loss of reward is one thing. Paul said in Corinthians, some people, this literally is the language that he uses. Some will be saved as by fire. That, that basically means they get in by the skin of their teeth. Um, so you can 
confess Christ and truly be saved, but really all your life is wood, hay, and stubble that will be burnt up at the judgment. Whereas we want to build for Christ gold, silver, and precious stones, things that will remain as we stand before Jesus in the judgment. Does that answer the question? Yeah, it's perfect. Um, another one that we get in um, off topic, um, but was another one about spiritual gifts, um, asking what are the meaning of spiritual gifts? Maybe, um, not, maybe not the one you're expecting. No, well, I mean, I don't expect anything. <laughs> I don't, don't know what any of them are. With spiritual gifts, um, there's... Uh, the, people talk about gift, your gift. What is your gift? You know, oh, I play the guitar, I play the piano, or, you know, I, I clean toilets or whatever your, your gift might be. Um, and we have in church these forms. People fill out, you know, questionnaires to find out your gift. That's not spiritual gifts according to the Bible. Spiritual gifts in the New Testament, you can find them, you can read about them in 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, and there's other passages, Romans 12, and various other places, but they're supernatural. The word is charisms, grace gifts that God gives to his church to indicate power that rests upon the church. There's the fruit of the Spirit, that's character, Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, Galatians 5. But then there's gifts of the Spirit. There's a bit of a debate how many there are. Most people think there's about nine of them. And there's a whole debate about whether they're around today or not. I believe they are around today. I don't believe they ever disappeared. Um, but anyway, does that answer your question? Yep. Um, another one just after coming in here. Um, this phone's not that quick at opening messages here. Old Naki just lets me down. It's um, me timed. <laughs> um, I think it seems to have died, but in short, um, it was... Oh, it just came back to me. Um, what happens to those um, in the world um, who haven't heard the good news of God, such so as people in the remote parts of the world, um, and die without hearing um, of the gospel? Well, there's two answers to that depending on who asks the question. If you're a Christian and you ask that question, what happens to those people is you need to go and tell them. Okay? So don't ask philosophical questions about how will they ever hear when you can go and tell them. Now, you may not be predisposed yourself to go and tell them, but if you're not going to go, you finance people to go because there's plenty of people willing to go but don't have the money. There's missionaries queuing up in India at the moment, indigenous national missionaries, who can't do what they want to do because they don't have the money. So you give them the money and they'll go and do it and in other parts of the world. But if you're a skeptic asking that question, that's a different thing. Romans chapter 1 tells us that everybody in the beginning had the truth. Everybody knew it. But what happened was they suppressed that truth. You study Romans chapter 1, read it, Romans 1. They held down the knowledge of the truth so that they might get on with doing what they wanted to do. And then the consequence was they began to worship the creature rather than the creator. Okay? So that's where you get animism from, people bowing down to idols and worshipping animals, which is what you get in parts of the world, likely that you're talking about where you're saying, what about people that have never heard? What you need to appreciate, if you go back generations among those people right to the very beginning, these people knew and made choices. 
hence again the great importance and responsibility of free choice, not only for yourself, but for the generations that come after you. Your choice will have an effect. Adam and Eve's choice affects us. Our choice will affect generations to come. So if we debunk God in the 21st century United Kingdom or Ireland, there will be consequences for a future generation. They will not know the truth. But there is grounds to believe that we will be judged according to the knowledge that we have. And if you're a skeptic and a cynic tonight and you ask that question, you're the one that needs to sit up and listen because you live in the wee land of Ireland that has been the land of saints and scholars for centuries. You've had the knowledge, the way of salvation. What have you done with it? And so you could say, what about these people have never heard? Well, you've heard and you still haven't believed. Who's to say they would believe? Most of them wouldn't because we all tend to go our own way. But the, the onus is in you. What are you going to do about the knowledge and the truth that you have? That's great. Um, another one just in was, will people in heaven um, feel pain for friends and, fam and family um, that have gone to hell? Cool. Yeah. Um, it's hard to conceive that heaven would be heaven if we were conscious of people in hell. And this is one of the mysteries. Um, there's certainly, there's a bit of a time lag between everybody. You see, we talk about heaven um, as a place we go to when we die, and that's true. But the Bible talks about in the future a new heaven and a new earth, which is ultimately the big heaven that we're all looking forward to when we're resurrected and with new bodies and everything. And it's actually heaven and earth coming together. A lot of people don't realize that. But the new Jerusalem comes down to earth and basically heaven and earth are united, which is what God always wanted. Um, there's probably a, a time lag whereby we will be aware of the awfulness of things going on in the world, the judgment that will be here the pain of it all, because sin brings pain, it's just a fact. But ultimately, that is bound to be erased from our consciousness for the rest of eternity, because heaven couldn't be heaven if we're constantly reminded of the torment of those who are lost. So I can check you, really. Yeah, um, that's great, that's all we have. Um, but as David said, I'm sure he'll be around for a while at the end. Um, so if you have any more questions, um, feel free to come up and ask them. Um, so we're just going to have the band back up. Um.